0: if you would uh, join me again today in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 6. We will begin, pick up where we left off from last week in verse 9. I I think the bulletin says that we're going through 9.22. We're actually going through 8.22. Still a large portion of the story uh, that we're considering today. Uh, And so I would encourage you to Uh, Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 6, and we'll begin uh, by looking at verse 9. It is um, a strange time that we live in. Um, Some people will ask... uh, Is God judging our nation? That is a a loaded question that I do not desire to answer in these moments. I think we can all agree that we live in wicked days. Uh, And the question before us is, how will we live in the midst of wickedness? Can we live set apart holy lives to God in such a wicked world where sin and evil is So present in every aspect of life, in the places that we go, is it it even possible to live for God in the days that we live in? As we come to the passage today, we see that as the people of God, as Christians, we are to live the same regardless of where we are or what we face, that we live all of life in obedience to worship of the Lord, and that includes seasons of judgment, that even in seasons of God's judgment, the servant of God lives a life of obedience and worship before God. Last week as we began this part of the story, what we know is the flood narrative, the, the flood story, we put a lot of emphasis and focus on the sin, the judgment, God's grief over that. Uh, we will touch on that again today as we consider the magnitude and the catastrophic event of the flood but I want us to turn our attention more this morning to the man Noah his family and consider how they lived in the midst of this great time of wickedness and this great moment of the judgment of God if you would continue the story with me beginning in verse 9 it says these are the generations of Noah Noah was a righteous man blameless in his generation Noah walked with God We see here in these opening verses that in a world of wickedness, the righteous will live by faith. Uh, repetition is very important to this part of the story, as we'll see in a moment as we walk through uh, chapter 7 and chapter 8, that the writer uses a lot of repetition. He, he repeats himself, and right away we see a lot of information that we already know about. Uh, verse 10 is, is a, a, a repeat of what we've already heard in chapter 5, verse 32. Uh, and then verses 11 through 13 is really uh, re-articulating, re what we looked at last week in verses 5 through 7, speaking of the depths of depravity in the world, God's brokenness over sin, and that he will not allow sin to go unpunished. There are some differences here in wording, uh, but the heart of the passage, the message, is the same. So last week we saw words like wickedness and evil to describe the people in the world. Here we see the word corrupt used twice and that the world is filled with violence. The writer says this twice. Last week we considered how God was sorry that he had made the world and that sin grieved him to his heart. Here we see that God is determined to make an end of the world, to destroy the world. He has set his mind on this. Uh, We are given a little bit more detail. We we understand here that the entirety of the world is corrupted through the sinfulness of man. Uh, We see that there's still violence in the world, that the event of Cain and Abel was not an isolated event, but man still has hatred in his heart for his brother. Uh, We see here, too, in verse 13, that God said to Noah, that God speaks directly to Noah, his servant, uh, and, and makes him aware of his plan. We see this personal fellowship with God for those who have faith in him. We see this with Abraham, where God reveals his plan to him to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. We do see some similarities here as well. We see that God's sight was on the earth that he saw. We spoke of this last week, and so a lot of repetition here. And By restating this and emphasizing this, the writer wants to highlight the wickedness of the world, necessitating God's righteous judgment and his brokenness over sin. But he is also highlighting here in these first few verses, specifically in verse 9, this one, Noah, who lives a set-apart life from the corruption and the wickedness of the world. Look there at verse 9. It says, Noah was a righteous man, was blameless in his generation, and walked with God. As we walk through this story this morning, we're going to see evidence of Noah's walk with the Lord. We've already talked about what it means to walk with God as we considered Enoch earlier in chapter 5, verse 24. But notice here these two important words about Noah. He was righteous and blameless. This is a righteousness, though, that is not his own that comes by faith. We fast forward again to Hebrews chapter 11 in verse seven where it speaks of Noah and it says that he became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. He is justified by grace through faith. In this passage, I believe we see the the three primary aspects of the Christian life, justification, sanctification, and also I believe we see a glimpse of what glorification here. In verse nine though, we see justification, that Noah is justified, that he is brought into good standing before God by grace through faith. And again, this is not a righteousness that is his own. It is the righteousness of God that has been imparted to him. And so for those of us who are in faith, who have faith in Christ, we are justified by the blood of Christ on the cross, receiving the righteousness of Christ. And so in faith, it is no longer the sinful flesh, the sinful person that God sees, but he sees Christ's righteousness that has been imparted to us. And so Christ goes to the cross and he dies a death that he did not deserve, taking the wrath of God so that in faith we might receive what we do not deserve, his righteousness. We come into good standing again through the blood of Christ. By grace, through faith, are we justified. And so here we see in Noah that those who are justified are indeed able to live holy, set-apart lives in this wicked age. Uh, John Huss was a forerunner to the Reformation. He lived about 100 years before uh, Martin Luther and the other reformers came onto the scene. and uh, He was also concerned about the corruption of the church in his day, primarily over the selling of indulgences. And so he would not stand uh, to affirm the corruption that was existing in the church in his day. He preached out against it, and eventually he would be burned at the stake by the church for renouncing these corrupt teachings of the church in his day. And I want to share what he said about the prospect of dying for Christ, because I think it's fitting with what we're considering here. John Huss said this, he said, I hope, by God's grace, that I am truly a Christian, not deviating from the faith, and that I would rather suffer the penalty of a terrible death than wish to affirm anything outside of the faith or transgress the commandments of our Lord Jesus Christ. My prayer is that my heart and your heart would be the same as Huss. that we would be willing to die for our confession that Jesus is Lord. And that we would be willing to die to live in obedience to our master in these wicked days. Days. It is becoming very popular in the Christian world to say, you know what, it's impossible to live for Jesus in this world. I can't expect myself and my family to live differently uh, than our friends do. And there's, there's this tendency to want to look more like the world and conform to the ways of the world instead of obeying our master in our day. I want to encourage you today in the midst of corruption and wickedness, that it is indeed possible to walk with God as Noah did. We can live set-apart holy lives before a holy God. God tells us as his people to be holy as he is holy. That word holy literally means set-apart, that we would live lives that are separate from this world. We can affirm biblical truth in our day. And stand on the word of God. Now that does not mean that it will be easy. Persecution will most certainly come. You will be mocked for being a follower of Jesus in our day. Uh, Children, when you go to school or you join your sports team, it is a hard proposition to consider, kids, that you're going to be mocked for being a follower of Jesus. That is a a scary thing to consider, even as a child. But kids, let me me encourage you with this this morning. It might be a scary proposition, but it is worth it. It is possible, but more importantly, it is expected for those who are in Christ. We continue our story there in verse 14. Now, we're going to read a lot, so hang with me. Be ready. Here we go. Verse 14, it says, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it, the length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breadth of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of the every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds, according to their kinds, and of the animals, according to their kinds, and of, creeping thing, of every creeping thing of the ground, according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this, and he did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, "'Go into the ark, you and all your household, "'for I have set seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. "'Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, "'and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, "'and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also.'" male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month of the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swam on the earth. we see here in these verses, in a world of wickedness, the righteous will be kept by God. Uh, there's a lot that we just read there. Some important things I want to highlight until we get to the primary part of the passage. First, this is a true story. Uh, week one, the, the first sermon of, of the series of Genesis, we said that we affirm that this is true, that this happened here in this world. This is not fable, this is not myth, this is truth. Also, I want you to notice just the detailed instructions that were given to Noah. We, he's given the, the length and, and the height and the breadth of the ark, all of these numbers. Uh, he's told how to number the animals, how they are to come into the ark clean and unclean. All of these details are given, uh, much like what we see in the details that are given for the, const- the construction of the tabernacle And in this, we we see a couple of important things. First, we see that God is intentional and purposeful in all that he does. But we also see that we as his people are to be diligent to obey all of his commands. Now, as we're reading this, I hope you heard a lot of repetition. I told you it's an important part of this story. And it seems like uh, he keeps saying the same things over and over again. And if you sense that, you would be correct, He is saying over and over again similar things to communicate to us the importance of the salvation that Noah and his family found in the midst of the flood. One commentator said this, he says, it is first and foremost the picture of Noah's salvation that the author wants his readers to take a long look at. He wants us to consider for a moment the salvation that Noah and his family found in the ark. It would be like a director of a movie coming to the climax of the movie, the salvation moment of the movie, and drawing it out as long as he can so you as the viewer can, can, can soak in the salvation. You can soak in what you're seeing there. The, the writer is highlighting salvation in the midst of the flood. Now, primarily though, what do we see here in these verses we just read? Very simply this, there are two types of people. Two types of people that we find here in the passage, those who are in the ark and those who are not. Those who are not in the ark, it does not give us details about their emotions or the anguish that they feel, but their plight is clear. They were wiped off from the face of the earth. We see it in words like floodwaters and the idea of it rising high above every mountain of the earth. Later in chapter 7 and verses 21 through uh, the la- first part of verse 23, we see words like, blotted out, and all mankind died, and he repeats it there, emphasizing the reality of this, that God's judgment came on the earth, and all creatures were wiped out from the face of the earth. And then we see in verse 17 that it was God himself that brought this about. Verse 17 of chapter 6, "'For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth.'" To destroy it. This is the judgment of God on a wicked and fallen world. And as I mentioned last week, we are living in the days of Noah. Today, the judgment of God is coming again, and Christ will come again as that judge. And if you thought I was over exaggerating last week when I warned you of the coming of Christ again, listen to the words of Jesus Himself in talking about His return. Jesus himself says in Matthew 24, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Christ will return And I want to plead with you again, as I did last week, are you in the ark? Are you in Christ? When that day comes, when death comes, or when Christ returns, whatever comes first, if you are not in Christ, you too will be swept away by the judgment of a holy God. But we also see those who are in the ark those who God established his covenant with. Now, we'll talk about the covenant with Noah and his family next week as we look into the first part of chapter 9. But notice how crucial it is, the idea of being found in the ark. Some nine times the writer communicates this idea of going in, coming into, come in, went into, entered. And the importance of this is seen at the end of verse 23, when all of creation is blotted out at the end of verse 23, it says, only Noah was left and those who were what? With him in the ark. If you were not found in the ark, you perished. Today, if you are not found in Christ, you will perish. Heed the warning, friend. Notice, too, though, the importance that's placed on the obedience of Noah. Four times the writer tells us that Noah did all that God commanded him. He obeyed all of the measurements in building the ark. He he followed the directions in just constructing this massive boat, and we know this to be true because the thing floated. He obeyed the, the commands of God to bring in the animals as he did, as the Lord commanded him to but he also obeyed the Lord by entering into the ark. The Lord commanded him to go in, and he did. And this is crucial. All of Noah's work on the ark is for nothing if he doesn't enter. We do not get to pick and choose which commands of God that we follow. We do not get to pick the commands of God that we like based on the culture or what we preference. We must obey All the commands of God. But also, we see here in his obedience that it was not his obedience that saved him. Noah's obedience was an outworking of God's grace in his life. Remember, he is justified. And this is evidence that he is justified, that he obeyed all of the Lord's commands. James chapter 2, verse 6 faith without works is dead. 1 John 2, 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And so we see the importance of obedience in the life of those who are justified. But probably most important in all that we read is at the end of verse 16, six words, and the Lord shut him in. God closed the door to the ark. Uh, Scholars believe that the, the door to the ark would have been far too heavy and intentionally. It was built this way for one man or a group of men to close it, that it was built so that only the hand of God could close them in. Salvation is all of God. Noah was responsible to obey. He was responsible to build and to enter. But dear friend, it was God's sovereign hand that closed him in. God keeping a family, a remnant for himself in the midst of great destruction. This too is a theme of the Old Testament when God's judgment comes on the, the world or on the nation of Israel that he keeps a remnant, he keeps a people for himself showing his patient forbearance, keeping true to his covenant promise that he will establish a people for his own glory. And, and so we see a remnant here. Now, this is probably the smallest remnant that we see in all of scripture because Noah and his family, if, they, if they're wondering who's left, they have to look no further than the ark itself. They're the only ones who are left. But God has kept them for himself in his glory. It makes me think of the, the prophet of Elijah when he has a complaint against God and he's, he's groaning and saying, Lord, I'm the only one left. And God says to him, no, I, I have kept 7,000 for myself. In Romans 11, Paul speaks of this. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? And Elijah said, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Paul says, but what is God's reply to him? God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. It is easy in our day to become discouraged and say, Where is everybody? It's just me. Where are the people who fear God? And if we're not careful, we will find ourselves with an Elijah complex. I'm the only one left, God. And I would encourage this this morning to know that we are not alone in this fight that there are other brothers and sisters in Christ who share our confession, who share our convictions in this very room, in this very city, throughout this world, who love and cherish the gospel of Christ and live for Jesus in all that they say and do. And I was reminded of it this very week, this past week, I sat in a room with eight other pastors, pastors here in San Antonio who are like-minded brothers who share our confession, share our conviction. These guys preach the word of God faithfully week in and week out, who love the Lord and are leading their churches in and through the word of God. And so as much as I want to highlight the need for reformation in our day, and we desperately need to return to the word of God in our day. We must guard against feeling like we are the only ones left. There are brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the globe who we are joining together with this morning and lifting high the name of Christ in and throughout this world for the glory of God alone. We are not in this fight alone. And so be encouraged this morning. We pick up our story then in verse 8, or sorry, chapter 8 in verse 1. It says, but... God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month, and the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground, but the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth a dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth a dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the 601st year, in the first month of the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark. You and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done." While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. The final thing we see here in our passage this morning is in a world of wickedness, the righteous will abide in the promises of God. If If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write this down. God brings the rain of judgment. He also brings the wind of restoration. We learn a lot here about sanctification. We've talked about justification. We see here a lot about sanctification. So justification is that that moment of salvation where we put our faith and trust in Christ and we are made right before God. We are already in Christ, but as we walk through the Christian life in this world, we are not yet without sin. We still struggle with sin each and every day. And so sanctification is, is the, the work of God in our lives to make us more and more like Jesus. And we see sanctification here in chapter 8. We, we see in, in chapter 8 that sanctification in and through it, that it is all of God and that he will keep his people to the end. Look what it said there in verse 1. God remembered Noah. It's not that God had a chance to forget or they got, he got distracted in heaven and was like, oh yeah, that whole flood thing, I better get back to that. No, the writer is communicating here with simple human words, something glorious about God. He will never forget his people. He will keep us. If you are in Christ this morning, you will be kept to the end. Notice too what it says in verse 1, God made a wind blow over the earth. God himself brought about relief from the flood. He is the one who sanctifies. He is also the one who will glorify us. In the end, when we leave this life and pass into the next, God will glorify us. He will bring us to the end. And I think we get a glimpse of that when the ark rests on the top of the mountain and the waters dry and they come out. They've passed through the judgment of the flood. We also see here that sanctification is not passive, that we take an active role in our becoming more like Jesus. The writer here emphasizes that Noah is not passive in this whole thing. He's not just sitting back in his hammock in the, in the ark waiting for everything to be resolved so he can come out. No, look at all that the writer tells us he's doing. Verse 6, Noah opened the window. Verse 11, Noah knew that the waters had subsided. Why? Because he had done all the work to send out the birds. Uh, Verse 13, Noah removed the cover of the ark. Verse 18, Noah went out. Verse 20, Noah built. He is taking an active role in his deliverance from sin and death. Sanctification is dependent on our active role. We do not just sit by idly and passively waiting for the Lord to do it, but we participate in it. We also see here that they went out of the ark. God commanded them to go in. Now he tells them in verse 16 to go out, and they did, to be fruitful and multiply, to continue to be instruments of God's glory in this world, and they did that. You know, they, they could have just stood by the ark and said, you know, we should probably stick close by to this thing unless things go south again. We might need this again. Or they could have said, you know what, we, we shouldn't bring kids into this wicked world, as you hear the secular world of our day saying. No, they were obedient and trusted in the promises of God. Something else that we see here about sanctification that we don't often consider is that it is certain. If you are in Christ, you will be Sanctified. Noah leaves the ark, he comes out of the ark resting in and trusting in the promises of God, and when he leaves the ark, he does so never to return to the ark. There is surety to our sanctification. It is definitive, it is conclusive. We oftentimes think of just the progressive nature of sanctification, becoming more like Jesus each and every day, but again, if you are in Christ, your sanctification is sure, Sanctification also gives evidence of our obedience. Um, we, we see that here that he is obeying, he's doing all that the Lord commands him, even after the flood. We see here also that sanctification has implications on our family. Over and over and over again, the writer communicates about who? Noah, his wife, his sons, and his sons' wives. Noah's immediate family is a crucial part of the story. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7 as we read earlier, it says that he did this for the saving of his household as we are sanctified, we will see evidence of that in our homes. Finally, though sanctification is stimulated and encouraged by spiritual disciplines. We see this in the worship of Noah, that he built an altar to the Lord and he took some of the clean animals that God commanded him to bring into the ark and he makes a sacrifice to the Lord. This is a direct... Connection to the law of Moses and sacrificing clean animals before the Lord as a pleasing aroma before him. There is something to be said about the corporate worship, the regulated worship of God for his people in their sanctification. You cannot and will not thrive in the Christian life and look more like Jesus if you are not committed to the corporate gathering of the people of God week in and week out. To fellowship and discipleship. Christian growth in grace is by the application of these spiritual means in which God gives us worship and prayer and study of His Word, discipleship and fellowship. Noah's life was marked by sanctification. If you say that you are a a motorcyclist, but you don't own a helmet, And you don't own a leather jacket and you don't have the little CM designation on your driver's license and you don't even own a motorcycle. You are not a motorcyclist. You are a fraud. If you claim to be in Christ today and you do not love his bride and you do not love his people and you are not committed to the church, I want you to consider this morning, are you truly in the faith If we are truly in Christ, we will love his church. We will be committed to the people of the church, the bride of Christ. And so the most important application, then, as we consider how we live in the midst of the wicked world, dear friends, is to be committed to this. Be committed to this time, this place, this church, these people who you have come together in covenant community with, Week in and week out in the worship of God and fellowship and discipleship. And if you're visiting today, maybe it's not this church, but find a church where you can give of yourself and your life to become more and more like Jesus. And so the question before us is how will we live in these days in which we find ourselves? Will we fall in step with the world or will we do and serve and obey our master. And so I echo this morning the call of Joshua when he stood before the nation of Israel and said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As your pastor, that is my commitment before you today. Will you join me in that? Will you join me in trusting and obeying and worshiping this creator, sovereign, holy God in all of life? in the midst of these wicked days. Let's pray.